Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice in Harley Street, London, and I'm delighted to today to be joined by Fadrin Marlin. I mean, you may correct me, actually, I may pronounce that incorrectly. So I've known Fadrin from a long time back, um, almost, I think, when I was a medical student. Um, so Fadrin, tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of you did qualify as a doctor. Tell us a bit about your journey in terms of medical school and being a doctor. So I qualified back in Bristol Medical School back in 1985. So I've been working uh, in the NHS for about 35 years now. Uh, I initially trained in infectious diseases and tropical medicine and spent uh, two years working in Harare, Zimbabwe, where I was working as a lecturer. Um, and when I came back, I did a PhD at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, uh, interestingly on vaccine design. Okay, um, and, so, and so so, when you finished doing that, then did you go on to practice medicine? Yes, I went on to practice medicine and I worked um, mainly London where I was trained and worked in initially um, infectious diseases and then subsequently went on and trained in respiratory medicine and became a consultant uh, in the Royal United Hospital Bath uh, and that was 22 years ago yeah that was back in 1999 uh, and I moved here with my family my wife and three children uh, and I was worked as a consultant for 20 years uh, and then I retired probably because of my accident which I'll tell you a bit more about but actually yeah. uh, I'm still working still working for Health Education England so I've got back to work, which is good fun. Tell us a bit more about what you specialised, though, in, in medicine before the accident and what your life was like. Um, so having done infectious diseases and tropical medicine initially, after I came back from Africa, uh, I did the PhD and I thought I was going to continue in that academic career. And I was offered a sort of a, the equivalent of a postdoctorate um, working both as a sort of doctor and scientist uh, for five years, three years in the Gambia um, and two years in a lab of my choice. Uh, it was a sort of fantastic MRC funded um, uh, opportunity. But we'd had two years in Africa at that stage and we had three kids and one of my children had quite a nasty speech dyspraxia. Uh, and the facilities offered in the Gambia were not as good as Harare. And my wife sort of said, this is not going to work. So at that point, I thought, OK, I need to think about a switching careers. And because I was working on TB vaccine design, it was very easy for me to kind of segue over to respiratory medicine. So I trained in respiratory medicine uh, in northeast London, uh, went to the London Chest Hospital, uh, and various other hospitals around that area, and then got a consultant job in Bath. And I've been working as, as a consultant now for two decades and have just retired. Specialising in, in chest respiratory problems? Yeah. yeah, in respiratory medicine. And I still maintain my interest in infectious diseases and sort of did sort of subspecialty stuff within respiratory medicine. And what did you do for fun during that time before the accident? I, I was a very keen 
runner, then cyclist, then swimmer, and did train doing triathlon training. And I did a, a couple of Ironman triathlons, one in Zurich and one in Bolton. And I did about five marathons and sort of 10K swim on the River Dart. Um, so I sort of became a bit, not obsessive, I loved it. I was never, you know, I never competed at a very high level, but I just loved doing it. And that's kind of led on to my accident, which I had in New Zealand. So that was one of the big things which I did. And I loved being a dad. Uh, I loved my family. I loved, we had fantastic trips abroad. And my wife and I did a lot of cycling as well. We kind of cycled. We did Land's End to John O'Groats and we did the length of France and Ireland and Italy and Germany. So we did, yeah, we had a good time with a lot of physical activity. Well, in fact, I would argue that physical activity played a more central role in your life than it does for most professional people, um, perhaps even most doctors. What, what, what do you think? Yes. <laughs> yes, okay. in that my colleagues thought I was a bit mad. Um, I thought myself normal, <laughs> but I would say that, wouldn't I? Right. Now, before we get to the accident, I, I, when I met you, it was around the time I think you were embracing Buddhism, or I may have got that slightly wrong or, or happened before. Tell us a bit about that's, that. Yeah, no, 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 that's right. Um, I got into Buddhism when I was a medical student in Bristol. Uh, I was doing yoga, as quite a few of my friends were, and there was a sign which said... Uh, learn to meditate and I didn't know what it was uh, and being curious I went along and it just so happened that it was Buddhist meditation it could have been something else um, and the guy who was running it I thought was a bit odd but interesting uh, and I took to it like a duck to water I kind of I really liked it as something to do with my mind I wasn't really that interested in Buddhism as a religion. That kind of grew on me years later. And when did it grow on you? Um, slowly. Good question. I think I was meditating fairly seriously for quite a while. And I realised that um, to go further, and this kind of goes in the face of the way in which people are practicing mindfulness now, I realized that there was an element, I, I hate the word spiritual. Um, I, I, you know, I can't think of a good alternative example, but uh, there is an element uh, which involves the heart and it involves emotion and it involves the emotion of, I describe it as loving kindness, uh, love or sort of, platonic love, the love of mankind, of humanity, of sentience. And actually it was that which kind of got me into Buddhism because those are the two, the two sides of Buddhism, the wisdom and compassion. Um, and that probably happened, when did that happen? Probably about the time I was becoming a consultant in the late 1990s. Um, so I'm going to ask you a slightly challenging question, but I got interested in meditation because I was very anxious during exams. And so I wonder whether sometimes people are drawn to it because they're aware that they need to quieten the mind. So was that one of the reasons you were drawn to it? Were you, would you describe yourself as maybe being an anxious person or that wasn't the reason, the thing that got you into meditation? 
no, I wasn't anxious. And anxiety hasn't been a particular sort of feature in my life. I've kind of sort of been reasonably level-headed, I think. Um, it's interesting, I've heard people describe about why people do this sort of thing. And some people say it's people who are walking away from the dark. In other words, they're doing it because there are, there are kind of negative reasons or qualities which they're trying to get away from. Or the other alternative is walking towards the light where people are saying, well, whatever is going on in my life is OK, but that looks really interesting. And in my case, I think it was the latter. Now, another thing that's very interesting about the notion of, of meditation as a technique and then the embracing of a philosophy or a, a, a way of thinking or a religion or whatever it is you might describe it that lies behind the technique is when you look at meta-analyses of meditation, the one of the criticisms that the people who are in the field who know something about the subject point out is a sense in which many people, let's say within Buddhism, would argue you can't just have meditation as a technique that you just apply for an hour a week or an hour a day. You you don't really get the full benefit of whatever it is that's about unless you embrace a philosophy. The notion there's a technique that you can just take off the shelf in a supermarket consumerist way, as opposed to embracing a whole philosophy from which the technique arises out of, suggests that we may have got the wrong end of the stick in this whole mindfulness meditation vogue thing that's going on. I'm not getting the, the idea over very well with the words I'm using, but does that make any sense, the point I'm trying to make? Yeah, yeah, it makes, to me, it makes a lot of sense. It was kind of, I, I mean, I, you know, I come from a background of very rigorous science. Um, as you heard, I trained both in medicine and also in basic science, having sort of done a, a PhD in a scientific lab. Uh, and I'm I'm very interested in evidence and evidence an evidence base to be able to demonstrate that something's true. In the case of Buddhism, if someone sort of said, "Well, how does that fit?" and I think the answer is it's very difficult because I'm going to have to say it's experiential, and my experience of Buddhism, my experience is it's not just the technique. If somebody imagines that by sitting on a cushion for an hour a day, that that's what it is, and the other stuff around it is paraphernalia, I think that's a mistake. Um, and the two sides of the coin of Buddhism are wisdom and loving kindness, and you can't have one without the other. Um, and I'm not saying there's not a benefit of just practicing mindfulness, because I actually think that loving kindness can arise out of it, but not always. And other people may need to engage with loving kindness in other ways. And it might be by, for instance, having other friends who are also interested in that similar philosophy. So I think that it's also, if you like, it's the philosophy, it's the practice which matters it's not just about the the act of mindfulness or the act of meditation I don't know if I've said that any better than you no no I think I think you did um now the other thing I want to to talk a little bit about before we get to the action itself was that you were leading this very physical life and you're also leading this life of a scientific doctor and many people's um, caricature or fantasy about things like Buddhism and spirituality and so on is that it's a it's a world away from that it's people 
meditating in a monastery, retreating from the world. Whereas another view of Buddhism is it's immensely practical. It's got practical things to suggest about how you deal with the practical reality of being in the world. So that there was no contradiction between this incredibly physical, scientific life that you were leading. Could you say anything about that? Um, so one of the big mistakes and errors about looking at Buddhism is imagining that it's something to do with withdrawal. You know, people hear about uh, individuals who go away to caves and meditate, and they may do that for years and years. Or you imagine a monk going into a monastery and withdrawing in that sense. Um, in the history of Buddhism, where you do see that, you see uh, an equal description of Buddhists and Buddhist masters engaging with the world. And there's one kind of, it's quite a sort of beautiful, um, well, it's wrong to call her a god, but a sort of godlike form called Tara. Uh, and you see it in the later developer of Buddhism, uh, the Mahayana uh, development. And you see her seated. And she's seated um, with one leg in meditation and the other one sort of coming, coming off the pedestal and coming out. And it's this idea that she is, uh, she's often described as a savioress. And it's this idea about her coming out into the world. And this big theme in Mahayana Buddhism is the idea of the Bodhisattva ideal. It's the idea that there would be an individual who would suspend their own development of enlightenment or nirvana or whatever you want to call it, and they're going to put it off not until every single sentient being has become enlightened. And of course, you know, what does that mean? Well, I guess it's a metaphor for the idea of um, doing something compassionate for the world. Uh, that whatever we do, we do it for others. And so therefore, for me, it would be about friendship, it would be about being a very good doctor, it would be about me being a kind person. So my running, my involvement doing triathlons, I don't just do a triathlon, I do it with other people. And I sort of had a fantastic group of triathletes who I trained with and we were very good friends and they supported me when I had my accident so if I can sort of give a plug for Buddhism about it being an expression of compassion for all others then I would be doing it a good service. All right so now let's come to the accident tell us a bit about where you were why you were there and what happened. So for my 60th birthday and also, I was actually going to do something called retire and return, which you can do in the NHS. It's where you, you retire and then you come back um, a month later and you sort of start again. And you can work at a reduced rate and also take a, take a pension at the same time. And uh, it was my intention to do this and to mark that whole process of change. I wanted to cycle the length of New Zealand. Uh, by myself carrying all my stuff but it was with a tour it was called tour Aotearoa, which means tour new zealand uh, and there were going to be a thousand cyclists doing it at the same time and there was a set route and half of it was on road and half of it, of it was 
off-road on various uh, designated tracks. Um, and I did this. I had some other guys who were going with me. They were a bit faster than me. And also I like to blog. So I was uh, recording it and photographing it as I was going. And they went on ahead. Uh, and I got, I'd done a thousand kilometers. It was 3000 kilometers in all. Uh, so it was like double the length of Land's End to John O'Groats. Um, and I was loving this first uh, 14 days, this first sort of thousand kilometers, uh, but I'd hit a point which is known to be quite dangerous. Um, and I was cycling fairly quickly because I had to catch a jet boat uh, to, uh, there was a stretch which went along a river, the Wanganui River. Um, and I was by myself and I was going along this track and then I, I sort of remember it all. I remember having to brake because I'd seen something, being thrown from my bike. I remember falling through the air and I remember a thump like I'd never experienced before. And then lying on the ground and my legs floating and I knew I was paralyzed uh, because I was a doctor and I kind of thought this is what it's like and I kind of I had a rough guess where it was from I thought it was from my waist in fact I was wrong it was higher up it was more like high high chest level um, and I heard someone shout my name uh, from above maybe I don't know, it felt like a long time, but in fact, it was only seven or 10 minutes later. And it was people I'd met in the lodge the night before and they knew who I was because they'd recognized my bike because very fortunately, my bike had been left on the track above. Um, and it was a very specific bike with a sort of an unusual gearing system, something called an internal hub. Um, and one of them climbed down, um, and they eventually got hold of uh, the rescue services. Helicopter had to land about half a kilometer away and then walk in. Uh, and I was told I'd fallen 20 meters, which is a hell of a height. Um, the surgeon who operated on me later on that day told me a few days later that um, the mortality rate for falling 10 meters is around about 50% and I'd fallen double that. Uh, I had no head injury. I was awake for the whole experience um, and I hadn't broken my neck. I'd broken both wrists, uh, several ribs, and I'd broken my back at sort of T4, T5 level, uh, pretty well severed my spine. Um, and it was the beginning of the pandemic. And what did that mean then in terms of the impact of all of this? So my wife was there she met me in hospital that night I was helicoptered in after uh, being evacuated with a helicopter they, they they'd um, walked in the paramedics put me on a stretcher hoisted me up um, it was quite a long journey back they had to stop to refuel and then I was taken to the trauma hospital in South Auckland um, I had a big workup for trauma um, and I had five hours in surgery, uh, uh, must have been about 10 o'clock at night. 
and uh, I woke up, my wife was there, and I told her, I said, uh, slightly catastrophizing, that I'd never sit up again. She hadn't been warned about anything about what had happened to me or the fact that I wasn't going to walk again. And she uh, keeled over. They took her down to A&E. Uh, she was kind of revived and she was fine, but she then came up. Um, and uh, it must have been about half 11 at night. Uh, and I said to her, I said, uh, have you got my phone? And she said, what do you want your phone for? And I said, oh, I need to uh, do my Duolingo Spanish uh, because I've been doing it all year and I've got a, a whole year streak and I don't want to lose my streak. Uh, slightly aghast, she gave me my phone and I, I kind of sorted that out, uh, which says something about my personality. Uh, and also the fact that I sort of have re relied, I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, I've done running and did the triathlons and I was learning Spanish. Uh, all these things have kind of, I don't know, they've been my hooks for me to sort of keep me interested and excited in life but anyway the covid pandemic ensued my daughter came out and little by little she was banned from seeing me in the hospital then we got her on one of the last flights out of auckland and then we were trapped in auckland for another three months and what were those three months like what was happening on a daily basis were you in rehab what was going on so I had five weeks in hospital. They tried to get me home and they realized they couldn't because essentially all flights were, were closed down. There were a few um, sort of British consulate type flights which were organized to try and get British citizens out of New Zealand. Um, but I couldn't get on that. They wouldn't have me on a, on a sort of stretcher equivalent. Um, and so I had to wait. So after five weeks, they realized that they weren't going to get me out. And I then went to the Auckland Spinal Unit, which was actually fantastic. Uh, met people there who were kind of, you know, still friends and people who I keep in touch with, both in New Zealand. And there's one guy who's in uh, High Wycombe um, who had an accident at a similar time to me and was in the unit and flown back a little bit before me. Um, and uh, whilst I was in the unit, I learned lots of really useful things. I got a manual wheelchair. I learned wheelchair skills about how to hop up curbs and all that stuff. Um, and actually, the lockdown was released in New Zealand because they, they managed it quite differently and got down to zero cases for a long time, which was amazing. So we were released out in New Zealand and in Auckland whilst um, others were uh, in Britain and the rest of the world were still in lockdown. Um, and then eventually I was flown back to the UK. When you say eventually, how long after the accident then was that? So I had my accident at the end of February 2020 and they flew me back at the end of June. So that must have been very difficult for all sorts of reasons, but the, the pandemic meaning that you and your wife were alone in a way, out there in New Zealand. Is that right? That Absolutely. But we did have friends in Auckland, and the friends were fantastic. Uh, they were very supportive. Initially, I was completely locked down in the rehab 
unit, even my wife couldn't visit me. Then little by little, New Zealand opened up and then I had lots of contact with people and with friends and some of Kathy's family. This Kathy's mother was from New Zealand. So we had that link. Uh, of course, I couldn't see my own family, but actually I was amazed at the support I got from all my friends in the UK, from my triathlon club, from my cycling club, you know, just people went to no end to keep in contact with me. And there was a particular group uh, which was very interesting initially in meditating together. And then it just became a friends group. And then it became a group which became interested in kind of gardening and what was going on in our gardens at home because people were locked down in the UK. And then I came back and then, of course, I was locked down in the Salisbury Spinal Unit. No one could visit me. And then slowly, slowly people would start visiting. And so I kind of sort of went through a similar ordeal when I arrived back in the UK. Now, what about the emotional journey you were on? Tell us a little bit about what emotions you experienced when you first realised what had happened um, and what happened in terms of this emotional journey that, that you were on at the, in, during this time before you get back to the UK? It's a good question. It's a good question because, well, inevitably, I don't know if you've interviewed other people or you've any experience of it, either of yourself or sort of friends or family. I mean, I loved the outdoor life uh, as well as sort of, running I loved sort of cycling through nature through small Italian villages uh, I loved walking in the hills of England and Wales and Scotland and what you know wild places uh, I'd walked a bit of the Appalachian Trail and I realized I couldn't do any of this um, I knew that not <laughs> I'm not wanting to disclose too much that, but um, my sex life in uh, me being potent, that that was over. Um, I knew that I couldn't walk. I knew that where I was going to go was limited. So there I was lying in hospital in um, the in the trauma hospital in um, South Auckland, um, Middlemore. And on the one hand, I loved the nurses. They were such good fun. Uh, a lot of them were from the Pacific Islands, uh, places sort of like Fiji and Samoa. Um, and they were brilliant fun. And the physios were great. Um, but I was also surrounded by other people who'd succumbed to the same trauma as me. Some were some with neck breaks and unable to use their hands or very limited power in their hands. And I'd hear them moaning at night. I'd hear them wishing, saying, if only I could shave myself and feeling guilty that I had my arms um, and feeling sorry for myself and having uh, suicidal ideation, uh, sort of thinking, well, do I want to carry on this way? And I, I'll be honest, I didn't have it, the thinking that I was definitely going to do this, but I had the thoughts of it. And I had the thoughts of kind of, you know, what if, um, 
and at other times I was more positive. Uh, um, and these thoughts of suicidal ideation stayed with me coming right back to England and going through hell when I arrived back because shortly after being in all during whilst I was in Salisbury rehab unit and then for the months ensuing I then developed a new very rare problem with swelling of my spinal cord my good spinal cords beginning to affect my arms and then I was admitted to St George's Hospital uh, on three occasions I had four operations under um, the professor of neurosurgery in St George's uh, and the first three had failed and by the fourth and I'm this takes us to December of the of the same year remember I came back in in late June so right back uh, at the end of the year uh, the swelling had gone right up to my brain and the professor of neurosurgery said um, come in and he was going to operate on me uh, on the Saturday, uh, like two days after I'd come in. Um, and he was going to sort of throw everything at it, uh, hoping to get me better. The initial operations had worked, but five weeks later I'd relapsed. And I had this cord swelling right up, affecting my, my entire arm going down right up to my neck. Uh, and I knew that if it didn't work, and he knew as well that I was going to die. Um, and also I had the worst pain I'd ever had, such that I was screaming uh, at night. My son could hear me upstairs in his room. The scream was so um, non-human that my wife thought there was an animal in the house. Um, and so this second trauma or this repeat trauma, if you like, because it had happened repeatedly, but the worst was in December 2020. Uh, and you can imagine, I mean, I thought I was going to die all over again. Um, but I got through it and the professor surgery worked on the fourth and final occasion and it hasn't come back. And now uh, that I'm now what, a year and six seven months on from that final operation and i've made it and i no longer have thoughts suicidal thoughts um i guess i'm over that yes yeah, so it's been a it's been a hell of a journey going back to um the, the thinking about the suicidal thoughts and and before all this happened to you had you been a person who'd experienced any kind of deep loss before, like the loss of a person or um, some kind of trauma or some kind of extremely stressful event that may have led you to feel suicidal before this accident, or you hadn't had the kind of life whereby suicidal thoughts had ever come to you before? So, um, although we've known each other these many decades, because you're right, we knew each other as medical students, uh, having good friends in common. Um, you won't know this about me, uh, but um, I came from a very traumatic family and I was, um, uh, sadly, I was very abused as a child by, um, I mean, there's no one alive now to upset, but uh, sadly, my mother, who was mentally ill, uh, was both 
mentally and physically quite abusive to my brother and myself. Um, she sadly died by uh, suicide herself. And I guess that had a big impact on me. Um, as a child, I had a lot of suicidal ideation as a child and even as a young adult. Um, and interestingly, uh, and this bring, comes back to the Buddhism. Uh, this is kind of, I had the suicidal ideation, but I never thought of, I, I never followed it through. It was just a kind of, you know, thoughts which go through your head. But anyway, I was on a Buddhist retreat um, and it was around the time I qualified as a doctor um, and it was a retreat in North Wales. And interestingly, it was a retreat which had a lot of meditation in it. We were doing these triple sits and we were sitting, I don't know, five, six hours a day. Um, and also they had these things which I hated, these rituals in the evening things called pujas I wasn't into ritual and I kind of sort of let go of my very rigorous scientific way of looking at things and I engaged with the heart I engaged with letting go of anger frustration I can't but anyway on this retreat I did that and I remember sitting there one night late at night and the bats were flying in the air and I thought, whatever has happened to me on that retreat, I was never going to think of suicide again. Um, well, I haven't done since. Well, it's not true. I did, didn't I, when I was in the hospital, but not in a serious way. There was something about that retreat and about that moment, that turning point in my life, um, where I sort of let go of that. Um, and I've been generally positive and people who would know me would say that is part of my disposition now. What about before the accident when you were a doctor you would have known I would have thought given the NHS is a stressful place to work um, other doctors or colleagues or other professionals you work with um, complaining about stress <laughs> um, what, what, was your, what was your sense um, when that was happening because I get the feeling that you, as a result, perhaps the Buddhism and other aspects of your personality were slightly more serene, if I can use that word, in the face of stress? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I was very interested in medical education. And when I started working in the hospital in Bath as a respiratory consultant, as a chess consultant, I was college tutor for the Royal College of Physicians for about six years. And then I worked, looked after the second year doctors. This, that's sort of after their, their initial, if you like, intern year or junior doctor year. I looked after the, the so-called FY2 doctors, the foundation, the second year foundation doctors. Uh, and I did that for about three years. And then I was director of medical education. And then I moved to something called the deanery. It was called the deanery then. Now, now it's called Health Education England. And I ran professional support and well-being for junior doctors. And it was a unit covering the so-called seven region, which is sort of uh, in the southwest, but the northern part of the southwest. So Taunton up to Gloucester and as far east as Swindon. So about sort of eight acute hospitals and mental health and general practice. Uh, and our patch was about 
just over 2,000 junior doctors, and I ran professional support and well-being, and it was all the doctors who had fallen over, so to speak, and it would mount to about 8% of those 2,000 doctors, and they came to see us, myself and the case managers, and we would see them uh, with an initial meeting, and then we'd pass them on to providers, typically counselling or coaching, and sometimes uh, support for so-called neurodiversity or sort of dyslexia, um, autistic condition uh, support, and, and then those kind of areas. So I saw a lot of junior doctors who were in extreme distress, obviously sort of more than normal. Um, it was interesting about sort of my own experience of myself and all of that, and hearing their, their stories. Um, you know, junior doctors are, they're like normal human beings, and they've coped with quite a lot of stress doing their A-levels and then working in medical school. And even medical school itself is now quite hard with a lot of stress. But when they first start, particularly that first year, the so-called FY1 year, and also the transitions going on to a specialty, and particularly when they go on to sort of registrar level and they take on that responsibility and all that goes with it, it is massively stressful for them and my heart goes out to them and you know I, I cope I have the stresses and everyone copes with stress in a different way I would never mention to them that I was a Buddhist I you know I didn't feel that was relevant or professional but I would talk to them about the benefits of mindfulness and some of them would mention things like yoga, Pilates, meditation, and where that was appropriate, I would signpost them. Um, and I sort of, it was kind of horses for courses, and I would sort of direct them and help them as best I could. It's a difficult one, because um, I think one's own experience, you obviously, you give to that situation, but I think you, what's good for you is not necessarily good for them. And it's important to be very broad minded about that. But isn't there a sense in which um, people arrive and they complain about the world? The world has become a difficult place or is a difficult place. And um, what they're really doing between the lines and because a, 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 you're. Um, much more full of compassion and kindness than maybe I am. <laughs> what they're doing? I'm not sure. I, you, you don't know. <laughs> so, so anyway, so what they do is they complain about the world, and what they're saying between the work lines is uh, a common situation therapy: is take the world away, do something about the bullying boss or the difficult job I have, and then I'll be okay. Whereas, of course, the correct answer, if I can put it so brutally, is that you have to learn how you're going to adapt to the world as it is and how you're going to cope and their various coping skills. But this first key point, the decision to survive, the decision to cope and to take responsibility for coping, this shift, which is very profound and important, which is if I'm not coping, it's something to do with something I need to do something about, something that I have control over. I can't necessarily control the difficult world I find myself in. So this notion of personal responsibility, the notion that coping is possible, resilience is possible, and I have to figure out how to do it, 
i.e. puts the ball back in their court in the sense that obviously people like you and me can provide guidance and help and support and do a lot of things, but ultimately they have to make a decision that they are going to do something about this. And I suppose what I'm, I'm not using the words correctly, but one key point about the difference between this and the rest of medicine, you wake up in the morning coughing up blood, you go to the doctor, and generally speaking, what happens in the rest of medicine is the technology takes over, the pill the doctor prescribes takes over, and you're relatively passive in that process. All you have to do is have, the, you were operated on, the technology did something to you, and then you got better. In psychiatry, psychology, stress, emotional problems, there's a very different thing, which is you have to do something with the help of other people. What are your thoughts? You may completely reject that analysis, of course, but what are your thoughts about what I'm trying to say? Well, I kind of, I think you're right. I mean, um, it's interesting. I, I sort of, I've given a lot of talks and I've done a lot of training of consultants, particularly when consultants first arrive and they're sort of taking on uh, doctors in training to sort of help them cope during their early years um, and one of the I, I've kind of got an onion skin description about sort of uh, how the process of support for our junior doctors um, exists and my very first one the first kind of the core of the onion skin is the idea of promoting self-efficacy which is just what you're saying. Uh, it's this idea that uh, one needs to um, facilitate for that doctor in training to take responsibility to manage their environment and also manage their own responses to that environment. The difficulty is, is that's not the whole story. And when you listen to what's happening to our doctors in training, that whilst you want them to be resilient, uh, you have to think about not them alone, but actually there's a relationship between them and their supervisor. Um, and of course, you and I will be very familiar and not necessarily the listeners uh, now, but you and I will be very familiar with these terms like clinical or educational supervisor. And it's essentially the consultant or the GP uh, who will take responsibility to kind of shepherd and monitor and check that that doctor in training is doing okay. And so there's a imp very important relationship between those two people. And it's so important that that clinical supervisor or that educational supervisor understands the experience of the doctor in training uh, and is able to have both knowledge, awareness, but also kindness about what's going on. So whilst we want to promote self-efficacy, whilst we want the junior doctors to take on responsibility, they also may be going through hell at times with a very good reason. I remember a story, uh, and because I'm sort of describing this very, very broadly, um, but it was a story, um, so I don't think I'll be getting, giving anything away, but it's a story of where a junior doctor arrived at a scene, if they were an F1 doctor, and they saw a suicide. They were the first to see that, and um, it was a really difficult experience for them. And we have to be able to support them. 
And of course, you might say, well, they've, you know, they've got to be able to manage their environment. But actually, there's a lot which you can do to help them just at that moment. And of, for instance, in my hospital, we could provide straight away the following day uh, skilled counselling using our staff health. It was called the Employee Assistance Programme. And they were there to be able to support them the following day. In other places, you'll get a similar system, but they'll say, oh, we've got a two month waiting time. And for that, it's not enough. So actually, it's not just about telling the doctors, well, they need to cope. It's also about having an environment which is caring. Uh, and that would be the consultant who's looking after them. It will be the senior consultant in the hospital who trains the consultant. It will be the head of uh, education within that hospital. It will be the postgraduate dean who looks after all those heads of education in those different hospital trusts and general practice. So if you can imagine, it's a whole system of care and it's the whole system of organisation. So therefore, I would say you're right about the individual coping, but we also have to think about the system. And, and you're right to say that we have to do what we can to ensure the system cares and the system is often indifferent or brutal. Um, but let's talk a bit about that. I, I think that increasingly doctors uh, struggle in a paradoxically uh, an environment which is not very caring of, of them and not very kind. Um, and I, I mean, I'm going to extend the system out to include HR departments, the GMC, the BMA, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, any thoughts about that? Yes. Got to be careful what I say. <laughs> um, some HR departments are very good. Uh, I always remember this phrase, the shadow of the leader. Just this idea that um, there is a culture which can exist within an organisation or within a department and that culture is i would say facilitated or is developed by how the leader is and the sort of people the leader appoints and the culture of the board um, and if that is around facilitating care you can feel that through the organization and with, I've worked in a lot of organisations and I've worked because I've worked in the deanery, which oversees all the different acute trusts in the area. I've seen two hospitals repeatedly come top of the GMC junior doctor survey year after year after year. One of them was mine. <laughs> and I'm not saying that was me, but one of them was mine. And uh, well, it's it's in it's in the public sector. The other one was Taunton. Um, and so what what was it about those hospitals where the junior doctors right across the board from the most junior doctors to the most senior junior doctor? They call doctors in training now on junior doctors uh, in all the different specialties, going from surgery to medicine to general practice. All of them were saying we think that these particular hospital trusts are very good. And I think there's something around culture and around organization. So if that HR department gets it right, if the director of HR cares and there is a problem with, 
let's say there is a trainee, I can think of a very good example, a trainee where things were going horribly wrong for them. They were spending all their time on the internet when they should have been seeing patients. And we could record it and the HR department got hold of this, but they did something very sensible. They said, let's have a meeting. Let's give the junior doctor the chance to describe. And we got together with the junior doctor and we had all this evidence and you could imagine they were going to be cautioned. But the reality was they were going through hell. They'd come from abroad. They'd come over with their partner. Their partner had split up from them. Things had gone horribly wrong. They were very isolated. Um, and because the meeting facilitated the opportunity for the junior doctors to describe their experience, we could then see that there was another factor which contributed. So a really good HR department will pick up on this and they will care and they will do it right. Not all HR departments will do that. Uh, the GMC has got facilitators now. They've got uh, people who go out to the regions and who work very closely with, for instance, these things called, they used to be called deaneries, but now Health Education England. And locally, they say what's going on. And if there is a person who's been cautioned by the GMC or there are problems, uh, it's looked into and drilled down at a local level where local information can describe what goes on. And so the GMC, can be caring. I know it's not always that way, but it can be very caring when it works properly. And I've also seen examples about where it has been less caring. Um, okay, but um, let me put another analysis to you, which is the NHS um, is often overwhelmed. It's often under-resourced and for various other reasons may not be able to provide the service. So what it does, and this is a political analysis coming your way, um, to brace yourself for, what it does is it needs people to blame when things go wrong, which they will inevitably do in medicine for all sorts of reasons, even in a well-resourced system. And what it does is it targets doctors um, and it allocates blame to doctors. So there is a culture of bullying doctors. And when the, the example you gave, I'm very surprised that person got off lightly. Um, there's, a, there's a tendency to throw the book at doctors at, at, uh, as a basically... Um, there's an agenda, which is we, things go wrong and we need someone to blame. Um, I know this is a rather brutal and perhaps simplistic analysis, but I wouldn't be the first doctor to suggest this is the case. Um, so um, I suppose what I'm saying is um, the survival skills that I think I'm very interested to learn from you are relevant to that situation as well. But I noticed that you are constantly being rather benign <laughs> and kind and compassionate in your analysis of what's going on, whereas my, that analysis I just gave was a slightly darker one, I think. I, I'm not saying it because I don't think it's still, it doesn't mean that people aren't required to be resilient in the face of difficulty, but I suppose I'm saying that I think um, resilience in the face of difficulty is, is slightly more central to how doctors have to survive the NHS these days than it may have been in the past. In other words, it's, it's, it's a system that requires more survival than it, than it ever did before, when it may have been more supportive. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that some of the problems are, are slightly more systemic and aren't going to go away that quickly or easily. Anyway, but feel free to disagree with that analysis, obviously. Well, no, 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 I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, I think the pressure on 
our doctors in training is probably greater than it's ever been uh, for the reasons that you give. Why do I paint a rosier picture? I don't really. I think that I think what we what we're both saying that <laughs> I know it sounds paradoxical, but I think they're both true. I think that there are huge pressures on our doctors in training like never before. I think that when things go wrong, they can sometimes go horribly wrong for the individual. Um, and again, I'll mention a sort of controversial example, which again is in the public domain, and that that's of the uh, the Nigerian pediatrician, Dr. Bauer Garba, um, who, uh, as I don't know, you may recall, yes. was the, yeah, yes, the doctor who was um, uh, convicted for manslaughter, um, and she'd just come back from maternity leave. It was her first night back. Uh, there were supposed to be two registrars on duty that night, um, but, but one of them was not present for, I can't remember what the reason was, but she ended up, I think, having to carry two bleeps. Uh, the consultant who should have been supporting her was absent from the hospital. So you've got a massive systemic problem. That doctor never, ever should have been in, put in that position. Um, and uh, the outcome for that particular individual was very uncaring. Uh, so that sort of describes very well about, you know, systemic failure and the impact on all other junior doctors, all other doctors in training was huge. Uh, and, it, you know, it would lead, uh, for instance, my eldest son's uh, fiance. She's a, a, an F1 doctor at the moment. And I hear when she she's she's sort of come back to me quite a lot talking about uh, quite a lot of stress uh, in the workplace and I'm very aware about this kind of fear and the potential for defensive medicine and the worry about being convicted uh, and you and I when we qualify back in the mid 80s none of us felt like that, that I have no recollection of that being a particular issue uh, I mean I I don't think it was good back then because um, there was this sort of feeling of uh, things would be all right and, you know, your consultant might have a word with you. Um, you know, I think we should be accountable. But the question is, are we appropriately supported? Are our junior doctors appropriately supported at night time? Are they able to get hold of people? when they're called urgently by one ward to come and see one and they've got two other emergencies which they're having to handle what's the situation and what support do they have i think it's extremely difficult so let's come back to you now and i think you've been through um an, an event that many people um would not have survived as psychologically intact as you, as you clearly have tell us a bit about what you think has contributed to that um, and, and what your thoughts are, having been through what you've been through in terms of coping, resilience um, and, and um, surviving difficulty? What, what are your thoughts? Another good question. <laughs> yeah, it's good, 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 good to put me on the spot like that. Um, so it's interesting. I, one thing which I did was um, I'm... Uh, 
most of the way through writing a book, which I've written in diary form, a little bit like uh, Adam Kay's book, This Is Going to Hurt. Uh, I've sort of done it from the point of view of a doctor, uh, particularly a doctor who's had sort of an interest in um, professional well-being uh, and the practice of Buddhism. Uh, so I've kind of written it from the point of view of a doctor who becomes a patient, has a critical injury, and I find out very quickly that I'll never walk again. I've got what's called a complete spinal cord injury at a level T4. Um, and I then had this horrible complication, which has since affected my left arm, and I still have symptoms sort of going up into my neck, uh, pain rather than sort of loss of loss of power in that area. Um, so writing, I wrote every day for a year, and I kept a diary, and um, I thought I'd put it in the form of a book for other people with spinal cord injury, for doctors, for carers, um, and that helped. That sort of had a therapeutic sense of, sort of, of managing my feelings and describing what was going on for me and finding humour. There were some really funny things which sort of happened along the way, you know, like talking to a, to a nurse who was sort of describing about, she interviewed young men who'd had spinal cord injury and asked them about sex and, and how it felt about their sexuality for sort of what had happened. Uh, I found someone was nicking my phone in the night um, and I sort of challenged him and he handed it back to me and that was kind of weird. The professor who did all the injury on me, he wasn't going to operate because he'd never seen anything like it before. This swelling of the spinal cord without what's called a syrinx or a cavity in the spine. He wasn't going to operate, but he had a dream the night before. And in the dream, a radiologist consultant who specializes in x-ray interpretation came to him and explained my spinal cord MRI scan and sort of said, oh, this is what this means and this is the problem and he thought oh I can I can offer him this operation so he phoned me up the following day and he told me he'd had this dream but not mention his name uh, but actually he was spot on so I did get better um, and it took four operations to get it right finally but his dream led to me getting better just all these weird things along the way intrigued me and I wrote about it I described my Buddhism and also about how it hadn't supported me as much as I thought it would. But you know, in the end it did, and it wasn't so much the meditation, but it was more what's called meta, and it's spelt differently, uh, it's spelt with two Ts, um, but it means loving kindness. It was that element of Buddhism or the Dharma which supported me. People supported me my family did, my wife did especially. Um, yeah, what else did? Uh, the physiotherapist did. I had amazing physio support and OT support in, uh, back in, in Auckland, in Salisbury, and then finally in Stoke Mandeville. Uh, I remember writing uh, that uh, the physio, one of the physios, I felt bathed in physio loveliness. They were just so amazing. They had heart as well as 
fantastic techniques about how I whip across from my bed to my chair, from my chair to a car, teaching me about these transfers, these pivot transfers, where I put my fists down a bit like a gorilla and I lean in the wrong direction. I swing my head and my shoulders in the opposite direction to the way I want my bum to go and I can get into a car and I thought wow that's how you do it. Uh, my friends cared for me on WhatsApp in WhatsApp groups. My old uh, triathlon group supported me by raising money. My daughter raised money by running every single day until I came back to the UK. You know all these things all put together along with my own practice and love of life and love of people and love of nature all of it together somehow got me here does that answer your question well i think it does if i, if I was trying to put it in a way um what we might call in in western scientific <laughs> try to operationalize what you just said um yes. first of all i would say that a sense of purpose. You've always, it seems to me, had a very strong sense of purpose. Even the moment when you wake up in the hospital bed and your wife is there and you ask for the phone so you can do your Spanish course, despite what had happened to you, you still wanted to do the Spanish course. There's things you've always wanted to do. And what's very impressive, there are many things that are impressive, is that despite the fact that obstacles came your way, you still tried to find a way to do stuff. Even if you couldn't do the stuff you were doing before, there was stuff you've always wanted to do. So what we would say at my end of the desk is a very strong sense of purpose. But I think that's been part of your personality um, from before, I think. Um, you know, the PhD, the consultant, and the, the pursuit of Buddhism and so on, you've always had a very strong sense of purpose. But I do feel, another word we might use is goals, that has been pretty important and I think that's one of the take-home lessons for me there are others as well I'm going to come to in a minute but would you agree with that way of putting it yeah yeah I mean, there's a nice Buddhist term which describes just the same thing Sampajanya uh, meaning continuity of purpose um, and that continuity of purpose there's two elements to it there's the kind of the goal at the end which could be finishing the massive Ironman triathlon event but there's also what I had a trainer to help me along the way um, and uh, she used to talk about process objectives as opposed to just kind of goal objectives and the process objective would be when you are swimming imagine yourself as being slippery in the water uh, or when you are cycling imagine yourself getting down on those tri bars so your kind of wind resistance is as little as possible so there is the pleasure of if you like the moment and being in the doing the right thing in that moment not just about the goal at the end you kind of get what i mean about that Yes, but I want to talk about some other things which you haven't done, which other people do, which gets in the way of recovery, which is you didn't sound like you felt very sorry for yourself. It doesn't sound like you did a lot of woe is me. 
And it didn't sound as though you did a lot of what a lot of people do, which is what we would call counterfactual thinking. If only I hadn't been on that bicycle at that moment, my life would be different. We also call that wishful thinking. It sounds like a lot of negative things that people do, which land them in trouble with coping, you'd just have never done. What are your thoughts? Well, the answer is I did a bit of it. I did a bit of it. Uh, it may, yeah, maybe I did a bit. I didn't do that much. You're right. Uh, and of course, I'm, maybe I'm describing it sort of very in a rosy way. And uh, well, it'd be interesting because um, in my writing, uh, dreadful things happen. I mean, like when having had three lots of uh, operations done by the professor uh, at George's, and then it came back and it was really bad. Um, and it's interesting you know, kind of what dark thoughts I had at the time because I was writing at the time. So I might sort of go back and have a read just because of course we change, don't we? And because I would say that I am positive now and things are okay now and I've gone back to work, uh, I'm doing, I've got exercise, which I'm doing. I've got a personal trainer who I'm doing weights with. Um, I have lots of, I st I'm still doing my um, Spanish, <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, have I not done that? Maybe I've done less of it. Maybe when it arose, I have checked myself and I've said, well, you're doing that. Oh, pity me. Oh, sorry. Where is that getting me? And the answer is it wasn't getting me very far. And so I had a cognitive system for saying, actually, that's not good thinking. And is there another way to rethink that? Is that a reasonable answer? Yeah, of course. So oh, we're running out of time. Um, thanks for a wonderful interview. But what are your thoughts about the future? What are your hopes for the future and thoughts and plans for the future? I'd love to travel more. My wife and I really love traveling. And we used to love going to far flung places, love going to kind of small villages where you meet people and get in conversations and stuff. And I haven't yet got my head around exactly what that will look like, but um, I've now got a portable shower chair, which is brilliant. We've spent a week in Kent, which has been, which was lovely. And there's no reason why we can't go further afield. So I think traveling with my wife and possibly alone, I don't see why I can't do that. Um, so some of it will look like that. I will work for a while longer. I'm actually I'm still seeing the junior doctors in stress as well as um, sort of doing other, other bits of work. I hope to get back to doing a bit of training, training of the uh, consultants and GPs. Um, what else would I like to do? I would like to have time for my friends. I would like to have time for my garden. How about that? Great, Vargin Marlin. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.